as we come closer to the end of the things which are both in our study but also in this age. The Lord Jesus sends out His sixth and my personal favorite letter. Six of the seven letters, and He begins it in verse 7 of chapter 3, the book of Revelation, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. Now, in the sixth kingdom parable of Jesus, Matthew chapter 13, and you can turn in your Bibles over there if you'd like to just see this, it's just a couple of verses, Another short kingdom parable of Jesus. But he said in verse 45, Matthew 13, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. Now, you've noticed that he said again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. So he's following up the previous parable where he said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. You read the two back to back and you must assume that Jesus is just repeating himself in a different way. Sounds like the treasure in the field parable. Let me read it again. The kingdom of heaven is again like a merchant seeking fine pearls and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. Now while the treasure in the treasure in the field parable is Israel, and we talked about that on Sunday, the pearl cannot be. There's something else going on here. Pearls, you may know, are precious gems. They're not stone. They're made through a biological process that begins when an irritant gets into the soft mantle of an oyster or a mollusk, and the creature then secretes a substance into the wound called nacre. I don't make this stuff up. It surrounds that foreign irritant, that substance, and it hardens into what we have, what we call a pearl. What's interesting about the pearl is the outside of the oyster shell is made of the exact same nacreous secretion. How many of you thought you would come tonight and hear about a nacreous secretion? Well, that's what the pearl's made of. It's also the outer shell. Same thing. And since pearls are formed inside oysters, which are unclean creatures according to Torah law, not fit to eat for a kosher Jew, Leviticus chapter 11 verses 9 and 10, Deuteronomy chapter 14 also verses 9 and 10, forbids the eating of such creatures. So they can't rightly represent Israel. However... Gentiles, specifically Christian Gentiles, are foreign irritants made precious. That is exactly what we are. Next time someone says, hey, all your Jesus talk is irritating me, say, well, thank you. You just called me a fine pearl. We are outsiders. Gentiles. We are outsiders who enter the promises by the wounds of Jesus. We are covered by the secretion, if you will, of His blood. We are transformed then into His precious image in the same way that the pearl is formed. Romans 8.29 says, conformed to the image of His Son. That's what takes place in our lives. And by the way, speaking of foreign irritants, Paul wrote in Romans 11, verse 11, I say then, Israel did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be, but by their transgression, 
Salvation has come to the Gentiles, note this, to make them jealous. Gentile Christian faith is irritating to the Jew. To make them jealous that they might return then to their Lord, their Messiah, Yeshua. But all that to say, in the kingdom parable, we see this kingdom of heaven like a a merchant seeking fine pearls. And the fine pearl is the church, the pearl of great value to Jesus. That should tell you something, by the way, about the pearly gates. But we'll get there in a later study, Lord willing, and the saints don't rise. But tonight, tonight we come to Philadelphia. A church that is so precious to Jesus, such a pearl of great value, that He has absolutely nothing negative to say about that. Hallelujah. After several teachings where we had to delve into some harsh criticism, even some condemnation by the Lord, you come to Philadelphia and He has nothing negative. It is all good. It is all positive. Why is that? Because, listen, Philadelphia is the pearl that did not remain in the shell. Philadelphia. You've heard the word many times throughout the years. Just living in America, we have Philly, the city of brotherly love, and that's what it means, brotherly love. In the noun form, Philadelphia is actually only used seven times in the New Testament. Right here, and then in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, be devoted to one another in Philadelphia, brotherly love. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. Now as to the brotherly love, the Philadelphia, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Let Philadelphia continue. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere Philadelphia, brotherly love, fervently love one another from the heart. And then 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, In your faith supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, Philadelphia, brotherly love. And then in your Philadelphia, supply love, agape. Peter learned always to move from brotherly love to unconditional agape love. But we see this Philadelphia in the noun form. The last time we read this word is right here in verse 7 to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. It's the only time Philadelphia is used as the name of the city, which it was. But it's also the only time, understand this, in all the verses I read, this is the only time that brotherly love speaks of external rather than internal love. All the other verses that use the word Philadelphia are talking about love of the brethren, brotherly love within a church fellowship. But Philadelphia, the city, is brotherly love that goes out. Brotherly love that is external. Brotherly love that considers the non-believer and loves them enough to be the pearl that leaves the shell. The city of Philadelphia was 28 miles southeast of Sardis. Today it's called Allah Sahir, which means City of Allah. I like the previous name better. It was founded 189 BC, founded by Eumenes II. Eumenes II was king of Pergamos. Why would he found this other city, this, this Philadelphia city? He had a brother named Attalus II, and Italus II was himself called Philadelphus. 
which means brother lover, because he cared so much for, had such deep affection for his brother, that Italus came along and supported everything that Eumenes did. And even in the building of Philadelphia, he built it up with beautiful buildings, and the buildings all had his brother's name on them. He just lived to esteem his brother's memory, and so the city, Philadelphia, was well named as the city of brotherly love. Along with suffering Smyrna, Philadelphia is the only city among the seven to maintain a small yet strong Christian presence all the way up to this very day. There is still a small group of believers there in what is Philadelphia, along with suffering Smyrna. Interesting, the suffering city and the city of brotherly love. These are the two that maintained a Christian presence. But get this, historically, Philadelphia was a mission-minded city. I'm not talking about the church in Philadelphia. I'm talking about the city itself because originally the reason why the king of Pergamos established Philadelphia, which would be 70 miles away from Pergamos, the establishment was to be a missionary outpost of Hellenism in the Asian world. If you look at it on the map, it's right on the edge of what was called Anatolia, which is near Phrygia and non-Greek Asia. And the whole idea of Philadelphia was, we're going to establish this Greek Hellenistic city, and all of the language and the customs and the mores of Greek civilization, we're going to spread out to the east. We're going to take it into Asian regions. Have you noticed how perfect these cities are for the letters that Jesus wrote? His intentions, what he was trying to get across. He picked cities not just because that church needed a letter, but because the city itself would stand as a parable of what he wanted to say. Remarkable. And prophetically, we will find that Philadelphia is the church on a mission. The mission-minded church. Again, as with Smyrna, Jesus has nothing negative to say to Philly. No criticisms, no corrections, just three parts to this letter that we'll follow tonight. Character, commendation, confirmation. Character, commendation, confirmation. That's all that he covers in this letter, and yet he covers quite a bit. One more thing before we get to the letter. The last four letters that we've already been looking at, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, these last four letters reveal what I would call four isms of the last day's church. As we've seen, Thyatira represents Roman Catholicism, which is an attitude of living for the church. The whole idea of once a Catholic, always a Catholic, is because the church is what saves, and you live for the church. Sardis, as we talked about on Sunday, denominationalism, where you're living for the past. You're living for the founder, for the establishment of that faith. That tends to be why the denominations today are dying, if not at least very sleepy, because it's rooted in the past. We will get to, next week, Laodicea. Laodicea is libertarianism. Don't be offended politically. The attitude of libertarianism is living for the self. But Philadelphia, Philadelphia is evangelism. It is living for the lost. It is living for others. And that's our calling. It's been a while since I've had the airplanes 
this close. We need to put a big Jesus loves you sign on the top of the church and light it up. Yeah, and the the Christian pilots are going to fly real low. We'll know. Our calling, our mission is Philadelphia. Which is what, to me, makes this letter the most exciting of the seven. Philadelphia. This is the church that responded to the wake-up call of Jesus to Sardis. You remember he said, wake up. I have not found your deeds complete. Wake up, church. Open your eyes. Get with it. Remember what he said? Chapter 3, verse 3. Remember what you've received, the Spirit, and heard the Word, and keep it, and repent. Change your mind. Philadelphia is those who changed their minds. It's those who came out and realized the Lord was calling and they responded to His call. And so Jesus comes to Philadelphia with this component, part one, of His character. This component of His character. He says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This is interesting. This aspect of Jesus' character is more than what John got in Revelation chapter 1. You may remember something about the the keys. Uh, The keys of death and Hades, he says in chapter 1, verse 18. But there's more to this. First off, Jesus adds the one who's holy, the one who's true. When you read things like that, do you see that and go, oh, those are just titles for Jesus, move on. Don't do that. He's the one who is holy and true. There's a reason he describes himself this way as he comes to Philadelphia. We could say he's the one who is pure and genuine. There are two Greek adjectives in the New Testament that are used for the word true. It says holy and true. One of those is true as in not false. The other one, which is used here, is genuine. Pure. The real deal. It's the word alethanos, and that's the word he uses. This is Jesus pure and genuine. This is God holy and true. Then we see both words used together in chapter 6, verse 10, where the martyrs in heaven cry out, How long, O Lord, holy and true? This is Jesus who comes as holy and true. How long, holy and true, Lord, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood? on those who dwell on the earth, holy and true. What is Jesus saying to Philly in this component of His character? Because remember, His character says something to every one of these seven churches. What's He saying here? That He is holy God. He has genuine kingdom authority. Holy and true. And, and then He adds, the one who has the key of David. Look back at Revelation chapter 1.18. He says, I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Well, here to Philadelphia, he says, I have the key of David. So what's the deal? Well, same keychain, different key. This key, the key of David. Where does it come from? Well, to find out, we have to go back to Isaiah. So turn in your Bibles back to Isaiah chapter 22. In Isaiah 22, we have an interesting prophecy. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, verse 15. Come and go to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the royal household. 
What right do you have here? And whom do you have here? That you have hewn a tomb for yourself here? You who hew a tomb on the height? You who carve a resting place for yourself in the rock? Behold, the Lord is about to hurl you headlong, O man. He's about to grasp you firmly and roll you tightly like a ball to be cast into a vast country. And there you will die. And there your splendid chariots will be. You shame of your master's house. I will depose you from your office. I will pull you down from your station. And then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority. He will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And watch this. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. Now pause there for a moment. What's this all about? This Shebna was treasurer of Hezekiah's kingdom in the days of both Hezekiah and Isaiah. And Shebna wore the customary keychain on his shoulder. And this key locked and unlocked all of the treasury of David. So the riches, the wealth of Judah held by this key. But Shebna was an embezzler. He was a cheat. He was a crook. With his money, he built himself a tomb on the heights. That may sound strange to us today, but in those days, to have a tomb on the heights, man, that that meant you were well off. You were of the upper echelon, the upper crust of society, if you will. Do you know the most expensive tombs in all the world are on the Mount of Olives? If you're Jewish, why? Because that's where Messiah is coming, according to Zechariah. He's going to set foot on the Mount of Olives. I want to be right there, as close as possible, in the resurrection. And so to this day, those are expensive tombs. Well, this Shebna, he had an expensive tomb. And he rode around in his Rolls Royce phantom chariot all through town. All dressed up with nowhere to go. Life in the fast lane. Trying to impress with these riches. Flaunting his stolen money. And so God sends Isaiah the prophet to cast out Shebna, to call him out for what he's doing, and here comes this prophetic condemnation. The key is taken from Shebna, and it's given to a wise and godly man by the name of Eliakim. That's what happened historically. But this was a stunning prophecy of the Christ. Remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6? A child will be born to us, son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And if you continue now in verse 23 of Isaiah 22, the Lord says, I will drive him like a peg in a firm place. Jesus was driven like a peg in a firm place. In fact, the word peg there, yated in Hebrew, means spike or nail. I'm going to drive him like a nail. Like a peg. And Jesus was to the cross of Calvary. But he also then became afterward a throne of glory to his father's house in the resurrection. The name Eliakim actually means God who rises. God who rises? Driven like a peg in a firm place. This is Jesus Christ, holy and true, who now comes, go back there to Philadelphia with the key of David. 
The prophecy is of Christ, fulfilled in Christ at the cross and His resurrection, and now coming back, post-resurrection, in the revelation to John, as He reveals Himself to Philadelphia, I'm the one with the key of David. What does He do with that key? He opens and no one will shut. He shuts and no one will open. Verse 8, He says, I know your deeds. Behold, I put before you an open door which no one can shut. Now what does He mean by this? In the context of what He's saying right here, and our Bibles as commentary confirm this, the open door indicates evangelism. I am the one who opens the door. I have set before you, Philly, an open door. It's a door open for the Gospel. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 2, He who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. And so Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. If anyone enters through Me, he will be saved. And will go in and out and find pasture. The only way to be saved. Through Jesus Christ. That's the Gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that saves anyone who puts trust in Him. The open door. Paul used the phrase. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8. I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective service has opened for me. He says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, Pray for us as well that God will open to us a door for the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which also I have been imprisoned. He's the one that opens the door. How is it that any church is able to bring the gospel into the world? Jesus opens the door. But he also says, I'm the one who shuts and no one can open. This is where it gets a little serious. In that the door will shut on those who do not walk through it by simple faith. Doors open. I will put before you an open door for a season, for a time. But the time is coming when the door will shut. Do you remember the parable of the ten virgins? Jesus tells it in Matthew 25. It's an interesting parable. There are ten virgins and they go out to meet the bridegroom and five are prudent. That is, they not only brought their oil lamps, but they brought extra flasks of oil just in case it took a while. And then there were five foolish bridesmaids and they come out and... They didn't bring extra oil, they just have their oil lamps. Well, Jesus tells in the parable that the bridegroom was a long time in coming. He says in Matthew 25, verse 5, that they all got drowsy. That's interesting to me. They all got drowsy. We can be a people who get drowsy. But at midnight, there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom, come out and meet him. And all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish said to the prudent, Hey, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No. (laughs) There will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourself. While they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I don't know you. And Jesus concludes saying, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. You know what? When you get drowsy, there is one who wakes you, and it is the Spirit of the living God. 
Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18 says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Bring the extra flask of oil. Invite the Spirit to work in your life, to be involved in your business. Because the door shuts on those who lacking the oil of the Spirit are not ready when the groom comes. That sounds to me like denominational Christianity. There is not an expectancy for the coming of Jesus. There is not an anticipation. And a big part of that is the denial of the work of the Spirit. Where the Spirit is not invited to do His work among us, the people get drowsy and eventually fall asleep. And then they're not ready when the groom arrives. Well, Philly was ready. Jesus opens up the door of evangelism for Philadelphia, the historical church of Philadelphia, but prophetically, prophetically, Philly represents the church from about 1750 A.D. to the rapture of the church. In 1773, a young shoemaker, a part-time preacher, lived just outside of London. The Baptist church of Moulton paid him 10 pounds, get this, 10 pounds a year. That was his salary. Now, adjusting for inflation, obviously he made a little more than that. That would be the equivalent today of about $24 a month. So he's living off 24 bucks a month, and he supplemented his pastoring by cobbling shoes. And he did some teaching on the side as well. This young man had two books to his name on his shelf in his home. He read them over and over and over by candlelight in the evenings, the Bible, and a copy of the journal of Captain Cook. Captain James T. Cook. (laughs) Not Kirk. (laughs) But Captain Cook went where no one had gone before. He actually discovered the Sandwich Islands, which we know of as Hawaii. He was an explorer and an adventurer. And this young man would read his Bible and he'd read about Captain Cook. And he was filled with adventure. He was tired of working on souls, S-O-L-E-S. And he wanted to go out and save souls, S-O-U-L-S. He wanted to have an involvement in real life. And so on Sunday, May 31st, 1793, William Carey got up. And he stood in the pulpit of that little Molten Baptist church and the verse he brought carried a sense of urgency with it. He opened his Bible. He began to read Isaiah chapter 54, verse 2. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Spare not. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your pegs. William Carey told his congregation he believed that God was calling them to do just this. He talked about reaching people who didn't know Jesus, who had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. He took the words of Jesus personally and literally, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How many of us take those words personally? Go! Make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. And behold, I'm with you to the very end of the age. Jesus wasn't just floating that out there in case someone might pick it up. This is to you, it's to me. And Carrie got it. This was a personal verse and he stunned his little fellowship that morning. 
When he said to them at the end of his sermon, I want to go, send me to India. I would love to be a fly on the wall in that service. Send me to India, he said. And they're looking at each other. What? That's bizarre. Not only are they saying this to Carrie, or they're hearing it from him, but it's Molten Baptist Church. A podunk little church, not even in London, out in the rural areas. How can one little church make any kind of a difference and even afford to send this guy off? But you know what that little church did? They sent William Carey to India. They supported him. They backed him. And thus began an entirely new era in the church, what we call the modern missionary movement. It started right there with that little church, one tiny group of people saying, okay. They didn't know how it would end up. They didn't know what it would look like. They had no clue really what God was doing. They just knew that their pastor said, I got to go. And they sent him. In his first 10 years in India, the little cobbler William Carey became fluent in 12 languages. I've spent my life on English. I am barely fluent there. (laughs) Carey's passion to teach and to translate the Bible, man, he just took it all over the place. By the way, the Bible was big in missions in this movement. It was always about taking the Word to people who didn't have the Word. Getting God's Word out. William Carey translated the Bible into Sanskrit and his translation of the Bible in Sanskrit is still used to this very day. The New Sanskrit Standard Bible. NSSB. (laughs) They still use it. William Carey said to know the will of God We need an open Bible and an open map. Well said. Carey also, while he was on the mission field, he he wrote a book, the title of which would offend us these days. It's called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. (laughs) I guess since he only had two books on his shelf, he wanted one with a big title. He proposed in this book the forming of voluntary societies of ministers and lay people who can put their skills together for evangelistic purposes. And societies were formed. And missions, guilds, sprang up. Bible societies all over the place. A new global evangelism literally exploded at that time. But not because of William Carey. He was just one among many. You see, at that time, in England, and Scotland, and in Germany, in America, even in Canada, God was calling, and people were answering. They were responding. Adoniram Judson, he went to India as well. The famous David Livingston, during those years, David Livingston, I presume, went to Africa. Hudson Taylor sailed to China, and he founded... The China Inland Mission, touching tens of thousands of people for Christ at that time. Robert Bruce went to Persia, Iran today. Samuel Zwimmer was called the Apostle to Islam. He went to Arabia and to Egypt. William Wilberforce fought the slave trade right at home in England. Some of you have read about Charlotte Lottie Moon. Charlotte spent 40 years in China. 
Amy Carmichael served in India. She left and served there for 55 years, never taking a day off, never taking a furlough, never coming back home for a rest. 55 years of her life. And the stories of this era, they go on and on and on, including great revivals on both sides of the lake. These were the days of of Spurgeon in England and, and Moody in America. So many names, so many stories. Others I don't have time to mention. Eric Little, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, Nate Sake and Ed McSally and those who were part of, of that group. William Carey said this, Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. That's how it works. Attempt great things for God. Silly, crazy things. In fact, do something that without Jesus, it's absolutely certain to fail. That's when ministry really gets fun. When you step out and you try something and it's crazy. But you know you're led. How do you know you're led? Well, you have peace. You have faith. You know God's doing something. So you trust Him. You don't always know what it is. Right, Larissa? You rarely know what it is. You're praying, you have no idea why you're praying something, but you know you're supposed to, so you pray it. Why? I don't know. We'll find out. Okay, i got to tell you. I I wasn't going to share this, because I don't have time tonight, but hey, you're all here, I'm here, let's talk. Yeah. On Wednesday of last week, we had our worship night, which thank you, Rachel, for putting that together, and it it was marvelous. Now... I don't play guitar as often as I used to. So I'm up there playing and I have all these bar chords that I'm having to play. And, and of course, Rachel decided on that night, my first night back, to do 15 songs. So I'm just, I'm up there trying to hold it all together. Well, we get down to the second to last song, Oceans. And you may or may not have noticed this. I hope you were just in worship. But I'm up here playing and Oceans is all bar chords. I'm going up and down the neck of the guitar and all of a sudden... We get to the break. You know, Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. And my index finger on my left hand snapped down into my palm. Just like that. And I couldn't move it. I'm sitting up here holding my guitar going... (laughs) And I'm talking to my hand in my head, move, move, up finger... Let's go. Nothing. Snap down. Just, I'm totally cramped up. I felt a pain in my wrist and down it went. And I tried to open it up. I'm like, ah, that's better snap. It went right back down. And I'm like, I still have a song after this. How are we going to do this? And I put my hand on my leg and I'm, I'm, I felt like an idiot because I'm up here going, come on, man, come on, come on. Praise the Lord. You know, everybody's worshiping. I'm in a panic. And I finally stretched it out and got, got it to bend and I'm just sitting here doing this and, and Naomi told me later, she said, Dad, what were you doing up there with that whole... I mean, I've seen people lift their hands to Jesus, but that was just weird. Put my hand back on the guitar, finished Oceans. We did I Exalt Thee. Finished out the night and my hand was fine. Now, I just found this out last night. Wednesday morning... The Lord woke up, a sister here in the fellowship. Okay, it was Larissa. I didn't want to embarrass you, but there you go. Shouldn't have told me. Woke her up Wednesday morning and told her, and and she's telling me this last night, she didn't know what happened last Wednesday night. 
I hadn't told her she knew nothing about it. She's just telling me that last Wednesday morning, the Lord woke her up and said, I need you to pray right now for Rick's left hand. Excuse me? Now, put yourself in Larissa's slippers. Excuse me? Pray for what? You're waking me up to have me pray for Rick's left hand. That's really weird. But she did. I'm so glad you did. (laughs) Because without that prayer, I'd still be here going, and that's the result! (laughs) Which is why we only have four points tonight instead of five. (laughs) Pray for Rick. God will sometimes ask you to do strange things, but when you know it's Him, you do it. You trust Him. You follow. You attempt great or strange or bizarre things for God, and you expect great things from God. That was Carrie's attitude. That was this mission movement, and people were going right and left. Why did God begin to move at that time? Ah, man, I... Again, I don't have time tonight to tell you all that took place, but look at it historically in the church. In the 1800s, the 1900s, look at what God did in that season. You realize that's the time when Israel started flooding back into the land. When Zionism was birthed. When Israel became a nation in 1948. It was all... But God was moving. The Spirit was active in this world in amazing and remarkable ways. Why? Because it was time for the pearl to come out of its shell. It was time for the church to move again. And it has been rightly said, if we're not evangelizing, we're fossilizing. If what we do as the Bridge Fellowship is just here on a Wednesday night or on a Sunday morning, we will harden like the outer shell of an oyster and we will not be the treasure God intends for us to be. We must go. If we're not on mission, our hearts will harden. He calls us to go. Some of you tonight, He is calling and you're putting Him off. He may be calling you to something short term. Go down to Mexico for a weekend. Have you seen what's going on in Tijuana? All the migrants there? All those people? Oh, they don't get across the border. All politics aside, these are human beings in crisis. Some of you are being called... I'm not being called to go, but some of you... Some of us are being called. Will we answer the call? Do you realize that at the time of the modern mission movement, Hudson Taylor and Carrie and others, when they all began to go, it had been a thousand years since any serious foreign missions effort was launched in the church. Remember the late 4th century, the days of Constantine, Constantine the, the powerful, the days of the church state, theologians of the Alexandrian school began to propose that, well, we're in the kingdom. The kingdom is now. They said, we've arrived in the kingdom age. Why do we need to go anywhere? We are the kingdom. And they also began to say that Bible prophecy was allegorical. This is back in the 4th century. Bible prophecy is not literal, it's allegorical. It has to be because if it was literal, we're seeing it being fulfilled right now in an allegorical way as we've now entered into the kingdom. They said, Bible prophecy, by the way, is no longer for Israel. All those promises to Israel, they're for the church. All the curses are for Israel, but we get the promises. 
Because God is through with the Jew. That was in the 4th century. They began to preach that there's no future kingdom because we are the kingdom. And so, all mission work stopped. You get into the age of the denominational church, the Reformation, which we talked about Sunday, burned bright and true until teachings like predestination. So, well, if you're already, if it's already predetermined that some are going to hell and some are going to heaven, why do evangelism at all? And missions got further set aside. And did you know that at the time of the calling of William Carey and others, It had been 1,400 years since the church taught and believed the imminent, premillennial, pre-tribulation return of Jesus Christ. They didn't teach that. There are those who say, well, that didn't even come up until the 1800s. John Darby and some of those other nuts. The 1800s. Oh, you mean the era of the modern missionary movement when the Spirit was moving actively in the world and Remarkable ways that people started to return to the idea of a premillennial return of Jesus. That is pre-kingdom. We'll understand that phrase even better as we get into Revelation. I mention that because the impact of Jesus' imminent return on our mission is huge. If we don't believe His return is imminent, the mission dries up. Why do anything? If we think that the Master is a long time coming, we start to abuse the servants of the house. We, we stop feeding. We stop caring because we got all the time in the world. If we think Jesus is coming tomorrow, if you knew for a fact Jesus was returning tomorrow, what would you do with the rest of tonight? Would you even go to bed? I wouldn't. I'd be up all night calling everybody I knew. I would be the most irritating little pearl. (laughs) Bugging people, knocking on doors. Hey, it's tomorrow. I know it's tomorrow. Be ready. The imminent return of Jesus is like the gasoline in the engine of missions. It's what drives us. It's what ignites us. Jesus said, therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know the day your Lord is coming. So live ready. And it doesn't matter if you were in the 1st century or the 4th century or the 21st century. Live ready. Be on mission. It's His imminent return that keeps us from getting drowsy. Rick, you haven't been back to the letter yet. I know, we're getting there. I got all night. In the 18th century, people began to hear the wake-up call The church began to stir and the church of the brotherly love, Philadelphia, began to branch out in the world. Look at verse 8 again. I know your deeds. You know he says that in every letter. Every one of the seven churches. I know what's going on. I'm fully aware of your deeds. I know what your behaviors are. We're not fooling God in the least. I know your deeds, he says. Behold, I put before you an open door which no one can shut because, 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 because of three reasons. And now Jesus comes into what the second thing, confidence-boosting commendations. He has three commendations. Because of these three things, these three reasons are why Jesus opens up the door for Philadelphia. And the first one is interesting because you have a little power. 
What? Yeah. Yeah, because you have a little power. I've opened up the door. Literally, Jesus just said, because you have little power. It's not even a little power. There's no definite article. He just says, because you have micron dunamis. Micron, our our word micron. You know how big a micron is? That's how much power, he says. Man, I'm going to open up the door for you because, because you have little power. We have a, our garage door is a pretty heavy door in our house. And it's not always that easy to open. And I, I was thinking back, I remember when Naomi and David were really little. And they'd go to open the door and they would just flatten themselves against it. Because you know, they, they couldn't get it open. We had to open the door for them because they just had little power. But it's more than that. See, Jesus, this is a commendation. This is a good thing. He's saying, hey, hey, Philadelphia, I'm opening the door because this is great. You have micron dunamis. That's so foreign to the way we think as human beings. I want little power. I want great power. I want big power. I want massive book of Acts power. First century church power, man. I want my shadow to fall on someone and they get healed. Boom, baby. I want people taking, you know, snot rags from me to other people and they're getting healed. It's a little gross. Well, they were taking sweat rags from Paul and people were touching them and getting healed. So snot, sweat, whatever floats your boat. I want big power. I want resurrection power. I want lame leaping power, wonder working power. I want the big stuff. And Jesus says, this is so great. You have micron dunamis. You have little power. What's so great about little power? Little power requires much faith. When you're just a tiny little rural Baptist church on the outskirts of London... How could you even imagine that you could ignite the modern missionary movement? And yet, Molten Baptist Church heard the call, answered it. They had little power, and look at what happened. Let me put it to you this way. We are the William Careys. We are not the Wiley Constantines. Constantine was powerful. He was the emperor. The church aligned with Constantine. Suddenly the church had great power. Where did the missions go? Dark. It's little power. You have little power. We don't tout political clout. We don't glory in electoral majorities. We don't sport celebrity status. Who are we, really? We just have little power. Micron, dunamis. But God has done far more through carpenters and cobblers than through presidents and kings, I'll tell you that. He works through the individual. He works through the nameless person who just puts faith in Jesus Christ. Don't you dare ever sit in a church and say, well, they can all, but I can't. He's able to, but not me. She is gifted for, but I'm not. I'll tell you what, the one here tonight with the least amount of power has the potential to the greatest work of God. Little power. 
Remember what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 1.27, God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Weakness, yes. 2 Corinthians 12.10, Paul says, I'm well content with weaknesses and insults and distresses and persecutions and difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And think about it. In your moments of weakness, aren't those the times when you cried out to Jesus? That's when your faith started to rise. When you got it all under control, what do you need faith for? What do you need the Spirit for? What do you need God for? That was the problem with Sardis. They had it all going on. They didn't need. Jesus says the days of the Philly church are marked by little power. But know that we will have what we need when we need it to meet the needs of what He needs us to do. By little power. Because a little power in the hands of God goes a long, long way. One more thing with this, and I'm not offering this as a cop-out to miracles. But I have wondered this. I mean, literally for years now. Going back the last time we were in Revelation. I began wondering this and chewing on this whole idea of the Church of Philadelphia, the last days, missional church with little power. Is it possible that God is downshifting a little bit in terms of the power, the miraculous, the supernatural, before He gears up for the greatest power miracle in the history of the Philadelphian age? Greatest power miracle, what's that? I'll tell you in just a minute. But people might ask, well, if we have little power, how are people going to know that we're Christians? Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So you have little power, and he says, and, this is exciting, you've kept my word. Okay? You have little power and you've kept my word. These are the things that matter to Jesus. These are the things that when Jesus looks at you, looks at me, when He sees these things in play in our lives, He says, Oh, precious. Jesus said in John 14.23, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. In other words, you have little power and you've kept my word. These people love Jesus. Because it is the love of Jesus that causes you to desire, hunger for, thirst after, and keep His Word. The potency of the modern missionary movement was that they were spreading God's Word. They were taking God's Word out into the world and they didn't replace it with short, cute, anecdotal, topical, ear-tickling fluff. And there's too much of that. In the church in America, absolutely, no question. But I'm starting to see it in missions. And it concerns me less. I'm I'm seeing and I'm aware of missionaries going out with fluff rather than with the Word of God. William Carey, 12 languages. Why did he learn 12 languages? So he could teach the Bible in 12 languages. What did Wycliffe do in the Reformation? He got the Bible into people's hands. And if missionaries aren't bringing the Bible, what are they doing? It's getting the Word out. 
You've kept my word, Jesus says. It is so valuable to Him. It's interesting, He gives a parable in Luke 16. Actually, it's not a parable. It's, I believe, a true story. But it reads like a parable almost. Except it's the only one, if it was a parable, it's the only one where He actually names all the characters. He opens up a picture into the holding place of Hades. The story of the rich man and Lazarus. Do you remember that parable? They both die on the same day. A rich man goes to the torment side of Hades and Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom on the paradise side and in between is a vast chasm. And the rich man's on the one side and he looks across and he says, Abraham, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and and cool my tongue. And and Abraham says, do you see the chasm? Oy vey, there's no way (laughs) to cross from here to there. It's not going to happen. I'm paraphrasing the whole thing. And then, then the rich man says, well, well, send someone back to warn my father and my brothers of this torment. Jesus ends the parable, the story. I, I keep saying parable, I don't mean to. I don't think it is a parable. He ends that glimpse into Hades. Luke 16.31 saying, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Church of little power, keep His Word. Because it's not the power of miracles that changes hearts. It's the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. You've kept my Word. And, he says, third thing. And I, I just get the sense that Jesus is excited about these things. <laughs> you have a little power. You've kept my Word and have not denied my name. Unlike Sardis that was more interested in their name. Their own Omaha. This is Philadelphia, and they they trust in the name of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> Sweetest name I know. The name of Jesus. The Church of Philadelphia, the mission-oriented church, could not have fathomed any church coexisting with Allah or Buddha or the Baha'u'llah or Vishnu or Wicca or... Whatever the you know flavor of the month, the tolerant church that says we open our doors to whatever you want to believe. This church kept the name of Jesus, the only name by which we are saved. Matthew one twenty one. Remember the angel told Joseph, "You shall call his name Jesus." For He will save His people from their sins. Now, listen, these these three traits, these are traits that, again, they compel Jesus to commend the people. But if you read them, from our frame of reference, little power, kept His word, haven't denied His name, they are not extravagant by any means. These are not spectacular. They are not impressive. You built mass cathedrals across the land. You did mighty things. No. You have little power. You kept my word. And you kept my name. And these unspectacular basics ought to describe every single church that would expect Jesus to open the door for them. It's not what we make it out to be. It's simple. I was sharing with our staff this morning. It it throws me back. And I read it often. Psalm 131. I'll read it to you now. 
Psalm 131 that I think frames exactly what Jesus just commended, where David writes, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. And who among all human beings has the least amount of power but a little baby? That's the right attitude. Keep His Word. His Word is power. Keep His name. His name is power. And don't worry that you don't have any power in and of yourself or what you have is so little. Because the less the power, the greater the faith. Well, verse 9, Behold, he says, I will cause those of a synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. And that verse has actually been used by some to declare anti-Semitism. It's actually been quoted in churches that engage in and involve themselves in the boycott, divest, and sanction movement against Israel. Well, see, Jesus says right here, they're they're a synagogue of Satan. Well, hang on a second there. Jesus is not being anti-Semitic. He's a Jew himself. That makes no sense. The synagogue of Satan refers to those secular Jews, and we saw them in Smyrna too. Remember, suffering Smyrna had the same synagogue. And I shared with you then that the synagogue of Satan may very well have been one of the pagan temples to which the Jewish people were secularly going for social events. Becoming like a synagogue of Satan. We'll hear the same thing is going on historically in Philadelphia. Prophetically, this would be any of those secular Jews who Jesus says are really not Jews. They're Jew in name only, but these are those who would align themselves with the pagan worldview against the church. Liars in Philadelphia who invite Christian persecution to kind of throw the heat off of themselves to save their own skin. But listen, I want you to understand the other side of this as well. Because just as devilish are Christians who are not Christians. They claim the name, but they're liars. And you know they're liars because they align themselves against Israel. The prophecy that motivated William Carey in the first place to go to India... That Isaiah prophecy, listen to it again, Isaiah 54 verse 2, Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwelling, spare not, lengthen your cords, strengthen your pegs, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. Gang, it's a prophecy for Israel. Now that doesn't mean that William Carey used it inappropriately. Because we share in the promises. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been grafted in. So the promises are yours. But they are also still Israel's promises. And for the church to stand up and say, and we've talked about replacement theology before, that the church replaces Israel. That that heresy came right out of the 4th century. It came out of thinking that the church was in the kingdom age. And Israel lost their chance. God is not through with the Jew. 
And we're about to see that in dramatic ways further on into our study of the revelation of Jesus. But watch this. Referring to those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not but lie, watch what he says, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and know that I have loved you. That's really interesting. If you read it in the King James, it's even a little more convicting or uncomfortable, really. I will make them come and worship before thy feet. Isn't that blasphemy? I'm going to make those of the synagogue of Satan come worship you. Well, that's not what he's saying. But he does use the word proskuneo, which the NASV translates bow down. The King James rightly translates worship. So he is literally saying, I will make them come and worship. And our translation says at your feet, but the word at is technically before. I will make them come and worship before your feet. What was he talking about? When is that going to happen? I suggest to you we already know. Philippians chapter 2 verse 10 says at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's believer and that's non-believer. There will be that moment in time, pre-great throne judgment, when every knee will bow before Jesus. All people, whether they chose to accept Him or not, will recognize His glory, His Lordship, His authority. Believers, non-believers, faithful and faithless alike, and all will bow down in worship. And at that time, all those who spurned you as an irritant, they will recognize that Jesus loved you. They will see and they will know. They're not there worshiping you. They're worshiping Jesus because come into the presence of Jesus and it is all you can do. And they fall down before our feet because we're standing there. They fall down and they're worshiping Jesus and we're worshiping Jesus and they recognize He has truly loved us. Which brings us to the final part, the coming confirmations. And there are several here. Verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. Wait a minute, stop. What is that? What's the word of his perseverance? Let me encourage you, I know I have before, but the best Bible study you can do is to never assume you know what something means or never just brush it off as spiritual lingo. Oh, we kept the word of his perseverance. Okay, so, so what's next? No, wait a minute. What's the word of his perseverance? What does that mean? Well, it means we hung in there? Study it out. What does it mean? The word of my perseverance. Well, first of all, perseverance is the word hupomone. Well, Rick, you're a Greek scholar. No, I have good software. Hupomone, which is better translated patience. So ask the question again. Because you have kept the word of my patience. What is the word of his patience? This is important. If you stay in the context of this letter and let Scripture be the commentary for Scripture, Peter says in 1 Peter 3 verse 9, the Lord is not slow about His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. My friends, the word of His patience is the open door. 
The word of his patience is the slow but steady, faithful, continual, intentional, persistent mission of the gospel. Because you kept the word of his patience. He's been patient with us for 2,000 years. Can we be patient with our family who don't believe? Can we be patient with our friends who rail against us as irritating whenever we speak the name of Jesus? Can we be patient in this world that is filled with people who do not like the whole Christian thing? I hear from you and I feel it myself. When we come walking into this place, oh, I just wish Jesus would come tomorrow and blow this place away. (laughs) We might not say blow this place away, but we're thinking it. Come Lord Jesus! I just turned off the news. Come Lord Jesus! You've kept the word of my patience. Hey, I want Jesus to come back and take me home more than anything in the world. But in that divine tension, I also know too many people who do not know Him keep the word of His patience. You know, it's been 13 years since I told everybody Jesus might come before we finish this study. And He hasn't come. Why? Because He's patient. Do you know in the last 13 years how many people have come to faith in Jesus Christ who would not have been saved? Keep the word of His perseverance. Because you have kept the word of my patience, guess what? I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. What's that? In in your little power... You trust Him. You keep His Word. You don't deny His name. And you just keep His Word of patience. You just keep sharing Jesus. You just keep loving Jesus. You just keep speaking the name of Jesus. You just keep going. It's faithfulness. I said Sunday morning, it is long haul. It is your entire life. It's not just how is this week going. This week may be terrible. That's not the deal. It is your whole life. That He calls us to follow and be faithful and patient. But do that, do that until the greatest power miracle of the Philadelphia age, which is the rapture of the church. You want power? How about the lifting off, the catching up of every Christian on the face of the planet instantly in the blink, in the twinkle of an eye? There's your power. And that day is coming. And these, note this, these are the direct words of Jesus regarding a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Now, I know there are four or five views. I know there are people who say, no, that can't be a pre-tribulation. We're going to go into and through the tribulation. We're going to stay here and duke it out with Satan. Tribulation force, yeah! It's going to be awesome. My father-in-law has got an entire arsenal. We're ready to go. He says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from. The word is ek. In the Greek, it is literally out of. I will keep you out of the hour of testing. I'm going to keep you out. Why? Because the hour of testing or trial is not for believers. You don't go on trial. Your trial happened 2,000 years ago at the cross of Calvary. So I'm not going on trial for anything. I'm kept out of the courtroom. 
I am kept out of the testing. 1 Thessalonians 5.10, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I will keep you out. That's the promise, he says. Well, out of what? Because, Rick, you're trying to extend this to the rapture stuff. Listen, I'll keep you out of the hour of testing. What's that? That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test or to try those who dwell on the earth. The hour of trial is specifically, note this, it's a phrase that is only used in the book of Revelation. Those who dwell on the earth. You won't find that anywhere else in the Bible. That phrase, exclusive, nine times in the Revelation, and it always refers specifically to those who rejected Jesus. Well, I dwell on the earth. Yeah, but your citizenship is in heaven. You are not among those who have rejected Jesus. If you reject Jesus, yes, you're one of those who dwell on the earth. Revelation 17 verse 8 is one of those verses, those who dwell on the earth, whose name is not written in the book of life. Those who dwell on the earth. Verse 10 describes, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you out of the hour of testing or trial, that which is about to come on the whole world, that is a global trial to test those who dwell on the earth, that is those who have rejected Jesus. This is the tribulation. It is a global trial for unbelievers. It is not for believers. But... But let me remind you that the unbeliever is the target audience for the Philadelphia church. So don't divide yourself out so quickly. God will call us out when it's time. But until then, the unbeliever is my mission. Is to be my focus. The word of his patience. Man, if the lost, rebellious, non-believing world irritates you, there may be a pearl there. There may yet be someone to be saved. But verse 10 is a promise of the rapture of the church. I'm going to keep you out of this global trial that is for all those who do not believe in Jesus, a Christ-rejecting, sinful world. And verse 11, he says, I'm coming quickly. Oh, well, see, he says I'm coming quickly, and that was 2,000 years ago. The word quickly (laughs) is taxu. He said, I'm coming soon. I'm coming in taxi. That was chapter 1. I'm coming in a taxi. So it's, it's going to rev up, right? This is just taxu. I'm coming taxu. What, what does this mean? Very specifically, it means suddenly. Suddenly. I am coming suddenly. He can come suddenly 2,000 years ago or he can come suddenly tonight. But when he comes, it's going to be sudden. And the only view that allows for the sudden return of Jesus is the pre-tribulation rapture view. Every other view, you can plan out His coming. I'll explain more as we get into that. Not tonight. But nothing at this point has to happen prophetically for Jesus to call His church home. It's all done. The next thing on the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. And He's coming suddenly. And He says, hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. 
What crown is this? There's one above all others that applies to Philly. The Philly church. The mission church. What crown is that? We'll talk about it Sunday morning. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank You for Your Word. You commend this church. You commend this mentality. You commend this faithfulness of little power who keep Your Word and keep Your name. And Father, I would just ask that You keep us. That You keep us. That we would have Your strength, Lord. That we would have Your power. That we might simply be unspectacularly faithful. Lord, Pour out Your Spirit on us so that we, here at the Bridge Fellowship, we would be Philadelphia. Lord, if there's only one church of the seven that I desire to be, two that I would be willing to be, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Lord, if we must suffer, then let us be Smyrna. But Lord, give us the heart of Philadelphia. Like William Carey in the middle of his life, called to go. But whether we go into a foreign field, or we stay right here as little irritants in Oak Harbor, Lord, may we go out of the doors of this place and into the open door of evangelism in our community, in our homes, in our schools, in our workplace. In our social gatherings, may we be bold to keep the name of Jesus ever on our lips as You are ever in our hearts. Father, You you promised us in this study a blessing. Blessed is He who reads and those who hear and those who heed the prophecies of this book. Well, Lord, I ask for the blessing of the Philadelphia Spirit among us. Make us passionate for those who are lost until you come. It's in your name we pray.